Welcome to the Lawrence Book Podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Lawrence Sports. I hope you're doing well. I've got a fantastic podcast for you today. I'm delighted to welcome our very special guest, Caroline McGrory. She has had an outstanding uh, career that is still ongoing at this moment in time, but I think for anyone who's either starting out in sports law or is currently working in sports law will um, get a lot of value from listening to her extensive experience working across different areas of sport, different roles. So to give you a flavour of the work that she's done, but I'll let her come on to this in a, in a minute. Um, she started her career at a city law firm, many of you will know Charles Russell, now our Charles Russell Speechleys, um, after which she joined BAR, which is British American Racing, as a legal director. And then she was part of the um, senior management team there and then went under and undertook the work to buy out, if this is correct, Caroline, to buy out the team from Honda in 2009 to create Braun GP that went on to win both the Constructors and the Drivers World Championship that year. And if if you like like Drive to Survive, then you'll you'll you know need to go back and have a look at um, what happened during that period. It's an incredible time. Then the team was bought by Daimler in 2010 and now competes as Mercedes uh, Petronas Formula One team. Uh, after that, she went on to become uh, the in-house lawyer for uh, Leicester City Football Club and now she is the chief legal officer for the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. Um, Caroline. Good morning. How are you? Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, you when we were talking, uh, and then we, every time we do speak, you've always got such an interesting perspective of what's going on in, in the sports space. But to, 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 to start off, for people that aren't familiar with your career, can you just talk about, I guess, one, why you got into law in the first place? <laughs> and then secondly, um, why you and how you transitioned in-house? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I studied, I did study law at university, which um, was, it wasn't something I had always thought I was going to do, to be brutally honest. It was just, um, it was sort of a little bit of a last minute decision when I was applying for university subjects, actually. And I think it was my sister who recommended that she was like, I think you should do law. And then I looked into it and I was like, actually, this is, this, this, yeah, that's quite interesting that nobody in my family had ever done law. So there was not like there was any, any history of it in the family. Um, so I, I was, I studied, I was lucky enough actually to get a place in, at St. Anne's College in, in Oxford. So I had a fantastic um, legal grounding actually at um, studying law there. I, I then, you know, I went on and, and went along the normal, the routes really, as you know, you then started applying for training contracts when you were second year, third year at uni. I had a year out, travelled and then um, trained actually at, at Pinsons, um, pre- predominantly in Birmingham, actually. So I'm originally from the Midlands. So um, trained in in, um, in Birmingham, did a seat in-house during my training contract, actually, at GC, Alstom, um, which was a big engineering company. And that was my first insight, actually, as to what it could be like um, in-house. And I, I, I loved private practice. It was great. There was just something, though, at that stage in your career that you were just given that little bit extra responsibility. And I kind of thrived on that, that extra confidence of, um, of being able to sort of just run with a contract, which you never really had the opportunity when you were sort of more junior, often in, in private practice. So I qualified in, into the commercial seat and the commercial department at Pinsons and then moved out and in, in in-house quite early actually I ended up doing um, two 
almost three years at AstraZeneca, actually, um, working in their commercial team, which was fantastic in-house um, legal department, international, fantastic training, you know, really sort of top calibre. And it would have been really sort of a, a, a job for life because it just had a fantastic career progression and and um, for all its lawyers. But there was just something in me that I'd always... I loved playing sport. So I did um, played sport all the way through school. Um, and was at that time, it was very, very difficult to get into a firm that did sports law. It was just there was very few. And the few that did it were dominated, really, you know, and and it was um, it was like gold dust to try and get into to sort of that to practice in that area of the law. So, but I actually, what I ended up doing is that I saw an advert for an in-house role at IMG down in London. I was living in Manchester at the time and I thought I'm never going to get this because I've got no sports experience. Yes, I'm doing commercial stuff, but I'm working at a pharmaceutical company. They're never going to take take me. And actually, Brian Clark, who was the general counsel, he'd set up the London office actually with Mark McCormack at IMG. I don't know what I just got on very well with him in the interview and I don't know whether he just thought I'm going to give her a chance, but that actually was my first step into sports law. And I always thanked him for giving me the opportunity to kind of take the chance on me, actually, because I must have just been, I must have shown my enthusiasm that this is just what I really wanted to do. And I always remember going into his into his office and he used to, he, he'd done work for Ayrton Senna and a lot of the, the big names in motorsport. And he had all their helmets in his, in his office. And I always remember that thinking, wow, this is really cool. I want to do something like this one day. So, um, so yeah, so IMG was a fantastic grounding, actually, from a sports um, law point of view. And presuming that that was IMG kind of, at the not quite the initial stages but in the early stages not the it wasn't the behemoth that it is now yeah no exactly I mean it was a it had a very good and well-renowned sort of legal team but a lot of the lawyers actually ended up going and taking on um top commercial roles actually so you found that a lot of the the um leaders within IMG and a lot of the within the different countries or within some of the like the golf division for etc etc had all been part of that legal team actually under Brian um, and then they'd stemmed off and and taken a more commercial role so there was a um, it was quite close-knit actually and it was I think the key thing was is it just it gave you that grounding you know in, in sort of golf contracts tennis um, rugby they'd started doing they started doing a bit of football at that point and um, and I was lucky enough actually to meet Mark McCormack as well you know he came over to the London office so there was just it sort of felt quite authentic when you were when you were training there and I went over to their head office in in Ohio and um you know it, it just I loved it I loved every single minute of it and I was there for a few years and and then had, was given the opportunity to to start um so Charles Russell had a had a lot of clients that were were in the sports arena sports and media arena but they didn't have a dedicated sports business group and they were looking for somebody to just spend time to try and build it with the existing clients that they had and to try to bring new clients in so for me at that stage in my career it was just a fantastic opportunity and I actually also kind of felt that perhaps I hadn't spent enough time in private practice. It was bizarre, really. Sometimes I thought, gosh, did I move in-house too quickly? I'd quite like now to be back in the city in London with that buzz and, and, and really have that excitement and challenge of trying to build a sports group so um it was great actually because we had very little budget as a as a um as a group but 
the teamwork was fantastic. So we had experts from across the entire firm, um, sort of the media side um, on, on the litigation side. We had Patrick Russell himself was obviously a significant member of the team with the and jockey club were a big client at the big big client at the time and then we acted for a lot of individuals but but it was challenging because obviously we were going up against the big the top sports firms at that at that time I'm sorry just so just to stop you there there was a thinking for a lot of people they won't know who Patrick Russell is so um particularly for let's say the 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 um, younger generation, the, sector, <laughs> yeah. the younger generation, yeah. right? They won't know, but he's a, he's a one an absolutely delightful person. Yeah, and he was one of the founds of you know his family founded the firm as well. He was part of that history of Charles Russell. So, you know, and and he um, he just he was renowned because he had he acted for the Jockey Club for a lot, a, you know, pretty much all his career probably. So it was a very traditional client of the firm. Um. So yeah, so you, I learned a, a huge amount um, from him. In fact, I also ended up we acted for um, um, Martin Johnson once in a um, when he had a, a bit of a um, and I wasn't a litigator, so I actually have no idea how I ended up doing this. I think, but ended up um, when he'd had a, a a bit of a scrap on the pitch with Robbie Russell. I always sort of remember it, and we went up against the RFU and and lost. But but you know, um, but the, but it was fun, you know, and it was great. And the challenge was to you know we were going up, we were the we were the the small guns, and we were going up against the bigger law firms trying to get work. Um, and eventually we got some work from the FA and we ended up fantastic team of lawyers and all the younger lawyers coming up then wanted to be part of that sports group. So when I was given the opportunity to, um, to well, when the role came up, at, so I, was at, I loved it at Charles Russell and I still great friends with with everybody there, actually, and the and the partners that I worked with. And um, but this a role came up at what was then British American Racing. And because I'd it wasn't so much that I was a super F1 fan, but I think because of the time that I'd spent with Brian Clark at IMG and the stories he would tell me about working with the Schumachers and having done work with Ayrton Senna and the like, I think I just, I, I, I saw, it, saw it as quite a unique sport, actually, that was quite different to any anything else. And, and when this role came up, it just, things like that just didn't come up very often. And they'd never had a sort of a permanent lawyer before. And what it was is that they were owned by BAT and, um, and they, as majority shareholder, and they just, um, they wanted to put somebody in sort of from the financial side and on the legal side, really to, to start building the team and, and do everything, make sure everything was, was operating correctly. So it was a great opportunity. So I was really sad to leave um, Charles Russell, but I must say I left fantastic team behind who actually built that legal, that sports team at Charles Russell flourished actually after that, because they just, you know, um, ended up getting a lot more clients on the on the back of the fact that you know a lot of hard work had been put in but but there was just a great team um to build on kind of what we tried to start and what would you say is that you said that you learned a lot from Patrick and that you had this desire to try and identify whether or not you'd missed out basically by going in-house so early what would you say is were kind of your the lessons that you did learn during that period when you went back into private practice what were the sort of when you look it back on it and you go because you already you know up to that point you'd already done quite a lot you know you had a, quite a lot of experience what, what what would you say when you look back and think actually that period was really good time for me to learn or develop a particular skill yeah it was probably a little bit that the variety I was quite lucky when I went back into private practice I was building the sports group but I was also a company commercial lawyer by trade essentially 
So I ended up, rather than just doing commercial contracts, I was doing corporate deals as well, which I hadn't really done before. So it was, you were part of the company commercial team, you did corporate deals too. So my, I actually, I think I broadened my experience um, hugely, actually, and I did a lot. I also worked quite closely with the IP team and did quite a bit on the media side. So you kind of got bought into lots of different areas. Um, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time in Hong Kong when I was there. We were on a project um, for one of our clients, and that was a real learning curve. And that was fantastic. Just the experience of working with a client as part of their team out in Hong Kong, there was a really small team of us. So I think it was, and also what's interesting is you kind of really, having done the mix of private practice and in-house, you, you, hopefully you can, you, you can appreciate what your clients need and want and, and how you, you know, what they expect actually. And um, I think that's pretty invaluable because sometimes I'll say to people, you know, I did a bit of an odd route really, because I kind of went in-house and then back private practice and in-house and I swapped and changed a bit and sometimes you know some people will ask and and I don't think there's any ideal route to be honest I think you just if you take I probably was a little bit of a risk taker I took a bit of, a bit of a risk in some of those roles um but actually I've, I do count I think it's a little bit of luck and and I did work hard to make sort of try to be as successful as I could be in them but but I do think, you know, sometimes you do have to just think, step out of your comfort zone a little bit and think, you know, what, I'm going to try that because it will it will broaden sort of your experience. And I think even now I'm I'm one of these people that my husband always says I get bored. I, get, I have to have something new to do all the time. I, I, I like a new challenge. Um, and so doing that variety kind of worked for me, you know, that I just I don't like sort of just taking things easy and, and just thinking, oh, this is I've settled now. And why do you think that is? Because, you know, because every time we speak, as you're saying that, I'm thinking every time, like, you know, you've come and done different things that we've done with, like, David, we came to the commercial because you were like, oh, I'm down in London. I'll come to this commercial negotiation workshop we did with David Murray, right? And I remember thinking, you know, you've been, you know, at the face of this already, you've done a lot, and you were just there to, to learn and engage and go, oh, hey, this might pick up something. You know, I remember that conversation. You're going, I just might pick up something. So I thought it'd be worth coming. And that's been every time I meet you, you've always got that. You know, am I missing? You know, is there something else I can improve on? But what would you say is what what what's? As I guess what I'm getting at is what's made you that way, right? Do you think? Yeah, it's quite interesting actually. I kind of I love to learn new things. I think you can never get complacent and think that you know know everything because you never do. And you know, and I kind of always say if you haven't learned something new each day that you're in the office, you're working with people, then. I just think it becomes a little bit stale that you just have to, you know, and it, and it might not it might not be legal stuff that you're learning. Like I'm finding in my current role, I'm learning a huge amount about management because I'm managing the biggest legal team I've ever had. So for me, it's been, you know, management tips and looking at how others, other people manage their teams and engage in their teams and team building. And what what are you doing in that, Gora? Because I'm I'm on the same thing at the moment. I'm I'm I've been telling the team. And I recommend this book. Tim Ferriss recommended the for an entrepreneur to get the must-read book is Peter Drucker's Effective the Effective Executive. Um, literally, I've got my whole team on it at the moment. I'm like, it's such <laughs> a great to book. Read that one. Yeah, it's brilliant. Like honestly, it's one of the best management books. But what 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 in terms of what are you looking at then? Because uh, you know, it, yeah, it's interesting because I think because I'm working quite a lot with operational people now and operational teams. They're really good at manage. They're used to managing large teams and. The, the way they look at their structures of their teams and you know we've got 15 in 15 of us in the legal team and that's just the legal team but also the HR department and 
the office and and um, office management also report into me, which I've never had that before either. So that's a whole new area as well, sort of being responsible for HR and office management as well. So having three, essentially three separate teams, but being a lawyer, essentially a lawyer, and my expertise is as a lawyer really, and um, but trying to adapt your management side style to, to you know, really sort of the key thing is empowering the the teams having a core group of senior what I would call sort of the senior leadership team in each of those areas that you can totally trust that you know you can delegate to and they will run with things because there's just the in in the sort of current role at the Commonwealth Games it is it is it is mad how busy things are happening and the quantity of work that's coming across in our emails on a daily basis is just phenomenal and it's just the nature of the game and it's just the fact that we've had challenges with obviously with pandemic and and you've got a fixed date when the games have to run and you've got to have everything done by then regardless you know there's no there's no excuses yeah we'll put it off uh, to, we'll put it off to, yeah. to a couple of weeks i'm not feeling up to it yeah exactly <laughs> so you just you can't do everything yourself you know and i've worked in different environments where i have been a sole in-house lawyer where you do have to do everything yourself and you kind of get used to that a little bit and then and then you've suddenly got like a much bigger resource um and it's fantastic but it's really it's sort of been super organized it's it's looking ahead it's constantly seeing what's coming down the line and 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 also you know we do a lot with i look at some of the um as I say a lot of the operational heads and the and the chief sort of our chief operating officers and our our chief workforce um sort of on the operational side they they just have a they have some really good ways of how they build sort of to do team building really and just to um build that atmosphere within their teams and it's and and sometimes it's great to see how other teams that are non-legal teams do that because actually you get some really good tips because they just yeah they see things different ways sometimes well, you're as dealing well. with people right but like, at the end of the day you're it's, it's the people like yeah. uh, i remember listening to a uh, lot the jocko willing podcast and he was a navy seal and he was saying you know people know military strategy now but getting them doing it is a different matter, right? That's the challenge. <laughs> it's like everyone knows in theory what you should do, but getting a group of people to be coordinated, to be respectful, to be enthused with all the, you know, and everyone's got different things going on in their lives is, is such a challenge. So coming back though, fascinating, right, to, to hear that because when I look at, you're essentially in like an entrepreneurial, one, you're in a fast-paced environment in Formula One, right, which would, I would say is a highly sort of entrepreneurial, uh, very dynamic very pressured environment right um you know you had conflicts with teams you have conflicts with drivers you have conflicts with with formula one itself with the fia um you know and obviously working collaboratively with all of those uh different stakeholders as well and then you're under you know when you when it, when um you set up braun gp that was no um easy task um right because it wasn't like you had all the huge financial backing at that point so it, how how it's interesting to me because I would have thought that would have equipped you. Maybe it has equipped you really well to be in your current position. But can you describe what that was like and um, you know, give us an insight? Because I, I really want to, if you can, sort of com- cross compare the different roles that you've done in house because they're 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 very different. You know, you've worked in Formula One, football, now Commonwealth. Um, so, what would you say in terms of what did you what did you take from Braun? Yeah, I mean, that was probably the best year ever in a role. I mean, to be brutally honest, it was just, it really was phenomenal. Um, And it was, I mean, there there were days where we all thought, uh, I mean, I don't know how many of the the listeners might know sort of the background, but essentially we were were owned by Honda 
and and it was difficult you know it was recession um we weren't winning races so we weren't doing great we weren't getting sponsors it was formula one was really expensive you know to run a team at the time and honda shareholders made a decision to to essentially to close the team because it just it it was spent they were spending too much cash on it and not getting the rewards so um it was that sort of decision was you know we had 700 people working at the team who were literally going to lose everybody was going to lose their jobs they were going to um they were going to shut the team down and I always remember that day I was actually eight months pregnant with my youngest son actually and we got called down to a um a meeting at Heathrow airport and I remember it to this day walking into the room and all the whole board of Honda were there to tell us and it was literally and we we all and there was the five of us who were on the um the the management team sort of on the corporate side at that time so there was so obviously Ross Braun um who was just the most fantastic leader um we had Nick Fry who was CEO who was fantastic and then we had the F- FD HR director and myself so um the five of us were basically tasked with right you guys now have to go and sort this out so go back you know you need to work out how we terminate all the contracts, how we deal with the people, you know, everything. So it was, it was literally, um, and it was, remember it was early December. So it was in the run up to Christmas and it was, it, we, we all, we all knew at the five of us knew and we couldn't tell anybody um, at that time, but we were saying, we're going to do everything we possibly can to find a buyer. So this, and we'll convince Honda to, um, to, to, to sell the team so we can save the team. That was the most, that was number one priority. And, you know, there was a, it was probably the most, it, it was fun, amazing sort of time because we were, we were speaking to potential buyers and we would, um, but so we were trying to do that at the same time as having redundancy conversations with everybody in the, in the entire organization. How did you like um, cope with that being eight months pregnant? Because for me, <laughs> Can't even being eight months pregnant is something that would that would be like obviously uh, a real challenge. But um, you know, you know, joking aside, just you know, be, you know, having a child is is a is a wonderful experience for for, for most people. And but uh, you know, nevertheless, it can be uh, it's exhausting. Uh, so how did you deal with the emotional issues that go with that? Because from you know, you got a family. You know, you're worried about no doubt you're worried about job security and um, and then you've got this added pressure that you're obviously a very compassionate person. Um, and compared, c- cared about your colleagues. Um, how did you, how how did you deal with that? Do you know it's funny, really. I don't know whether you just find some kind of strength at the time because actually I think back now and it, it does. You think, gosh, actually that was a bit mad. And you know, you'd be there on your BlackBerry because it was probably Blackberries then rather than. But um, no, but it was um, you know you'd it, straight after you know my little boy Finn was born. You know, I I didn't stop. So there was literally, but my I had a fantastic supportive husband. Um, um. So that was, you know, without that actually thinking about it, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But literally, I carried on working. I didn't take any maternity leave at all. And he, I would bring Finn into the office. So I mean, it sounds bizarre, but everybody just chipped in and would help. So I'd be in meetings at one point trying to ne- negotiate a deal to try to sell the team with the rest of the management team. And um, and somebody would be one of the other team members would be looking after Finn. And at one point, I think he got passed around the whole design office. Yeah, all the engineers. He was like became a little bit of a <laughs> uh, um, a mascot actually of of brought. Well, actually, it was interesting of Braun because he was born that year. But but you know, quite emotional now though when I think back. And it was um, but you just did it. It was just we were so desperately wanted to save it. We all loved what we were doing, and we were like, we're not going to let this die. It's not. It can't happen. It can't. 
Um, and so we had a number of different discussions and then it ended up that with various discussions with Honda that the best way to do this was um, through a series of negotiations and, and the types of contracts that we had and how much it would cost essentially to terminate all of them as well. We managed to um, agree a deal with Honda whereby sort of Ross essentially would would buy out, um, they would sell the team to Ross and he and, and the other five members of the team sort of joined with him on that essentially a management buyout. Now for a lawyer, you'd never, it was just unheard of really that sort of a, from a, a lawyer would get a chance to be involved in something like that. So I do count myself really, really lucky now to have had that opportunity to do that with a fantastic management team. And it was literally, we were making decisions by the day. It was like, literally, what should we be called? What should we do? We need to, we need to, we did one test before um, the first race and, and we were flying, we were way out ahead. And Ross had said in testing earlier in the in the tunnel, wind tunnel, he'd said, this car's really quick. And then it kind of went on the track and it was like, wow. But but it, it had a clever diffuser. I don't know if anybody remembers, but that we ended up having to go to court over, but we weren't. Um, but I kind of, you know, but it was it was this fantastic year, actually, that that was sort of quite like a bit of a dream really and the fact that we ended up winning two championships and we won a legal it was quite nice because the we had a legal battle in the middle of it and it was always good fun to to be brutally honest I did used to quite love those challenges um where you'd kind of you know be like oh gosh here we go let's go back to the FIA court again and let's let's see and we had a great team and everybody you know just rallied together it was just it was phenomenal for a you know, people will say to me now, sometimes you do team building exercise and they'll say, what's the best team you've ever worked in? And no doubt about it, it had to be the time in F1 because it was it's quite unique, actually, as a team, how how you work together um, through thick and thin because you have highs and lows, you know, all the time. So, yeah, I do sort of always think that that was a bit of a dream that that year and to be involved in something that was so different was just fantastic but I think that's fascinating from from a month one like wow like like yeah I already thought you were impressive <laughs> no, no, no. and now that you were doing that with a small child <laughs> I'm even more impressed I didn't know that uh, but the he's um, 13 now yeah oh, I know he looks at me probably gone? can't remember but, yeah but the, um, I know but the 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 thing I find fascinating about that is again, like you know, what, what makes a hyper? You know, I'm obsessed with this type of stuff. What makes a high performing team? And and obviously, you were stretched, right? So you had the stretch goals. But it, it, I always say about like what we do as a business. You know, I try to have this mantra anyway. It's not just what we do; it's about how we do it that matters. But you know, if you put that, you know, or if you took out the Formula One aspect of it, right, and you just take and you just take out the you know, objective, look at it, go, yeah, I had to work during my maternity. I was in meetings. I didn't know if I had job certainty, and yeah, outside of that environment and outside of that team, you, you, you'd be right. You, you, you totally understand if someone said that was an awful situation to be in. But obviously, having the context of you working towards a goal and you cared about the people that you were working with made it um, an for you anyway. And you know, obviously, your outlook on life made it an enjoyable experience. You mentioned that um, you know, it's such a great team. What would you characterize as? Um, a great team. Well, you said like um, yeah, again, Ross Braun was a, was a, just a fan, the best leader. What made him such yeah. a great leader? Do you know? I I must say I think I've been really quite lucky as well in my in my career that I have actually had real role models in terms of leaders that that have ultimately ran the teams. There was because obviously then Ross and then and then now Mercedes have Toto and I worked with Toto for years too and he's an also a phenomenal leader and to actually have 
have worked with so many people who are yeah and but very different you know ross just commanded he commanded a room he had respect everybody respected they lit him they listened and believed what he said and what he said was authentic and he cared you know and he was also brilliant he just he just was and he was always calm never raised his voice always stayed um sensible didn't get excited about things but just commanded that sort of you know this is what we need to do and we need to do it this way um and and then you know when we became mercedes when we sold the team to mercedes we then you know it was so braun was fantastic but then mercedes was fantastic too because then you had this these real you know, a big corporate behind us with all the support that we had from Daimler, who were just fantastic. And then Toto came in to lead the team as team principal and nobody had ever worked with him before. And he was also just, he, he his mind was brilliant in the way that he thinks because he's an entrepreneur. So his ideas that he would come up with on the spot, you know, he would just, he was very creative and you would be in meetings and you'd just think, wow, that was fant- what a fantastic idea. That's brilliant. How did you just come up with that just on the spot? So that was a, di- it, you know, you, you see so many different styles, but once again, being able to command a room, it's the, it, it's that respect, isn't it? You have to earn the respect. It doesn't come automatically, but once you have it, you can really see that it just, everybody knows what their role is Um you know, and I think also what what it was very much like in, in the whole um, my whole I was there for 13 years in F1 and it was just fantastic. But it was um, everybody's door was always open. There was never there wasn't any hierarchy. We were really flat structure. So there was nothing that everybody could talk. So everybody, you know, from the 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 cleaners or the or the mechanics who were who were working on the car would go and talk to the team principal just go up to their office and talk there was no it, nothing ever ever it just wasn't hierarchical and i've always learned i don't like as a result i quite i i quite like that kind of structure and i try to do sort of build on that now within the teams that i have in that yes there has to be an element of structure because it can't be completely flat but um whoever is in our team I'd always like to think they can always pick up the phone to me and talk to me directly they don't have to go through all the different layers of management because that's just that's just silly just to come and talk to me and I always try to to be always you know I, I always try try to be available I would hate I hate turning anybody away if I'm too busy I'll always try to make time to talk to them because you just don't know how important it is anything that anybody's going to going to tell you so I'll always um hopefully I mean gosh it's not always easy but you try my best to you know be available and listen I think listening you learn loads a lot by listening to what your team tell you that's right I just I'm just digesting that and uh I think that I agree with you I'm really again it's important to have some structure in place and you have accountability and you know who's ultimately leading but I agree with you these uh, you know flatter structure and it's one of the things we talk about in sports law with law firms in particular I think some firms are adjusting to it better than others but sometimes they just you know with these hierarchies you just stop great things happening and sometimes you're saying with these great ideas or thoughts or perspectives or you know someone gets dissatisfied and you don't know about it um that's such brilliant advice um obviously as well and the one thing that that you did obviously at, uh, at Mercedes. Obviously, you had Ollie, um, who who worked with you and Carrie, 
um, who have gone on to obviously to do great things themselves. But Lilac and, and I was saying this, you know, as in what you started there in terms of the legal team there, and you did like, you know, essentially had, um, and Carrie's talked about this before, one of the, the uh, podcasts about her journey in. But again, you were quite, you know, got her a training contract, essentially when she, when she did her research, got a training contract there. You took interns, you did a whole bunch of different stuff. But, you know, you were kind of a pioneer in, in the Formula One space in terms of building that team. Is that is that fair? That's how I perceive it, but maybe it's because I'm slightly slightly biased. But Yeah, we tried to make it as professional as we possibly could, actually, for an in-house team because we'd started, it was just me, and then I had, a, we were, a, when I was there, we were a small, a small team with myself, Ollie and Carrie, but we were really close-knit and we knew exactly what was going on and they were just fantastic in that they they just got on and did they kept the the field afloat they kept the, everything afloat while I might get dragged in to things here there or whatever might be going on um and and they were just it just ran smoothly and I think the key thing was is that we were we knew how each other worked and and it you know and they you know as you say when I left which was a really difficult decision for me but once well I was had there for 13 years and I I kind of thought that I'd never really done worked in football and really got to grips with sort of sport in football um, and uh, well, sports law in, in sort of a football context that for me, that was my new challenge. But I but I left, hopefully left, you know, I spent a lot of time with Ollie before before I, I moved on to make sure that he, it was like seamless so that he would just he could just run with it. And he was totally capable of doing that. So um, and Carrie is fantastic. And now she's taken the helm there and doing an amazing job so I do feel really proud that we we've done that and Ollie, Ollie Rumsey's at, um Oliver Rumsey sorry is at, is at Aston Martin now so like he's doing exceptionally well as well and it's brilliant to see um let's talk about this then this one's saying your career is just like fascinating to me so now we sort of I think listeners will understand what your personality type's like right you're okay doing really well but hey you know I feel like I could learn something else in a different area or challenge myself so you decide to go into the crazy world of football. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was that? How did you find it? And you had to deal with some real challenges in that, like some really, really difficult uh, times. Uh, you know, um, do, you want to, do you want to describe what sort of... You know? Yeah, no. So um, I joined Leicester just at, literally, I mean, I, I took the role just as they were about to win the Premier League. So joined at a time which was fantastic because we had Champions League year and the atmosphere in the club was amazing because it was this nobody had expected obviously within the club to ever have won the premier league and so this was just this dream so the so it was fantastic but but completely different to f1 um in the sense just every everything was very very different and i guess i'd never you, you kind of sometimes you probably took it a little bit for granted in the um f1 area how it is quite unique, actually, in the way that you do. It's quite, it's a very um, different type of sport because it's so technical and it's so, um, I'm not saying football's not intellectual because it is in a different way, but from a technical, um, the people that you're working with have, you know, postdoctorates in aeronautical engineering. They are, they are kind of phenomenal in their field in a very, a very expert area. And then you, football's probably more real you know, you go in and it literally is, you know, I went to every home match and you're there cheering on the team. It's, 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 it's fantastic. And I loved going to the F1 races 
football was was it was it felt more real in the sense it's real to the people that you talk to on a daily basis and you look back and think gosh f1 is it really is quite a unique world fantastic to have been involved in it for so long and and feel really privileged to have been able to but it was so it was different in football it's a bit detached i guess from a from a you know from a in a sense that um as you said you've got you've got very specialist individuals who are focused in on solving problems every day all day every day to get the margin these these gains right in a technical and everyone's focused on that one thing and the, the i guess the engineering side of it can can have as equally as much impact as the driver and other areas of, of what's going on so everyone's kind of really sharpened and focused on this area and then you've got a, f- a football club that's got the academy's got the you know it's got a much broader i guess community footprint yes, um, with different people yeah. Completely. And I kind of, that opened my eyes, actually, that you kind of sometimes forget about that when you see, you know, all you read about is, you know, Premier League and how much money the clubs have and their big sponsorship deals, etc. But actually, it's, it is very real. And you've got people working at the club that have worked there for 20 years. And a really loyal, a really loyal fan base, um, really sort of authentic that, you know, week in and week out, even if they're losing, you know, everybody's supportive. And, um and yeah, so we had a fantastic, really lucky at Leicester to have had fantastic shareholders who, who were, who supported the the club and were willing to invest, you know, and do great things. One of the, you know, we I was involved in the new training ground that we did there, which was one of the big projects that I worked on, which um, is just now probably the best football training ground in the world actually at the minute, state of the art, and that was fantastic. That was kind of new again because suddenly I was kind of doing construction contracts not on my own with a bit of help but but you know you were kind of working as I was part of the project team on that with a fantastic the estates director who was fantastic and our CEO Susan who was also just a phenomenal um um chief exec and but so you sort of try and doing different things as well you're, you're then doing the the standard you know your football transfers your sponsorship deals um and um very and different to the extent that we had a different culture because the you know our owners were Thai and I really liked that you know we did beginning of each season we did um the we would the owners would bring over um the Buddhist monks from Thailand and they blessed the pitch and we did a big ceremony on the pitch with the players and it that you know some really different experiences and you'd think this is fantastic because it was good luck you know before the start of each season um the it it was also obviously a really really sad time um when we had the helicopter crash um and it with our chairman and it was the one match that I wasn't there um it's really strange I, it was the only one match the whole time that I'd missed because I was at a wedding in Ireland actually and um and I remember getting the call well in fact I saw it on Sky News um which was just horrendous so dealing with that that kind of had a huge impact on the club I mean it was just the people I kind of probably feel a little bit lucky to the extent that I didn't experience it firsthand because a lot of people who did it was it was tough and they had a tough time because it literally happened in the car park of the club after the match um and that was that had a huge impact on the club but fantastic support from you know um the chairman's son just stepped up fantastic and um you know and actually it brought the club closer together it brought everybody closer together to be honest and um you know and it's it yeah i mean it it it, it was great i mean the work i was doing was different you know it was great i'd never done i'd only done a few sort of um player contracts before when I was at Charles Russell, but not for a, for a while, um, they were very different to driver contracts. You know, you've 
driver contracts aren't employee the drivers of f1 teams aren't employees for a start and there's got lots of tax um they're structured in a different way for tax efficiency and and you've got much more flexibility about what you include obviously the player contracts are pretty restricted because you've you, you've got your standard form um apart from the sort of monetary side so there's less it was less exciting to the extent that you didn't have as much um scope to negotiate from a legal point of view um but then there was a lots of other things going on at the time i was lucky to be part of the premier league lawyers cl- um group there was a sort of a smaller group that was a number of the lawyers from the um from the Premier League clubs would join together with the Premier League lawyers and meet regularly and talk about the issues that were going on at chief exec level and provide our legal input. So that was great on things, you know, all the issues of the day, transfers and um, agency, uh, you know, the agent agency regs and the like. So was there anything that surprised you, like uh, when you first got in, or I think it was that it was, it felt. It's interesting. In fact, it was a, a little bit more like working in a family it was different that you'd gone from I'd gone from kind of a um very um you know obviously when we were owned by Daimler we'd become very at at Mercedes um it was very it was a very corporate operation we'd made it quite corporate it hadn't been like that when I'd first joined because we were much smaller but it was it was it had become super slick you know for a number of reasons um and moving into into football it was it was like a big family I'm not saying it's not slick it was slick in a different way but it was um it was more complicated I guess is part of it because one of the things I remember speaking to you and Ollie and Carrie about like some of the stuff that you were doing there maybe it was just you know Ollie telling me this I can't remember now uh years ago but when I I think I came up once to see you guys and you know talking about you were getting like sleep basically years ago getting in sleep experts and stuff like that like in terms of how the engineers can come back oh, in so, so everything yeah. was and, and it was across it was not just for the players it was across like so for yeah. the drivers everybody who was, was traveling everyone who was traveling was, right yeah. so you had this yeah i guess it's like learned um experience or shared consciousness in terms of how do we all improve on a day-to-day basis whereas in football perhaps maybe with the elite guys so much energy is focused on and it matters obviously commercially to the team and the trickle down effect <laughs> I would imagine that that some of the information is harder to share across a uh, um, an organisation again because it's not like everyone's there at the same time either, are they? You've got you know in Formula One again, everyone will be in the factory. We've got you know we've got to deliver this by this point. We've got the race here in football. You could have a team going off, you know, in literally a different country, and then you know the uh, the academy players could be going off a different part of the country. You're right, actually. So sort of, you know you think in football the the players were the yeah they were the primary reason why we were there you know at the end of the day the team and, and what happened on the pitch every Saturday or Wednesday night or whatever night we were playing that was that was the be all and end all whereas and there's obviously a lot of uh, stuff goes on around the, the edges in terms of you know the sports psychology and the training and the and the and this um the medical side of how to get them fit and ready to to compete I guess on the um the, from an F1 point of view, it was the fact that between each race, there'd be changes to the car. So, 
you know, it would be back back to the factory and there might be a few tweaks and the guys would be, you know, they'll have designed something new and then it would be made and then it would be put on the car. It was like a, a never ending. It, it, it was actually less of a, so football's very much, it's a, it's, it's the sport that dominates it. I think in F1, it's the, it's the technology that makes it fascinating. And I think you kind of forget that. Yes, it is a high performing sport and yeah, of course you want the team to win and the drivers to win and to be on the podium. But it's the the technology behind it fascinated me because actually it's just it it's more advanced than the car comp- car companies. You know the the things that our engineers were coming up with to put on the car would you know we were then talking to car companies to say have you thought about doing it this way? Obviously you can't mass produce it at the moment, but this is the ideas that we're coming up with that were you know it's phenomenal. It's state of the art technology that is first in the world to ever to be you know to to exist that that being part of that was quite different that you probably didn't appreciate at the time you we took I probably took that element of it a little bit for granted whereas there's less there is some technology of course there is and there's the all the sports analytical side is huge now in football and analyzing the players performance and it's they'll wear their um the equipment when they're training and then it will all be analyzed and so there is an element of that but just in a different a different respect at the end of the day it's a bit more raw because it's it's there it's what happens on the pitch and there's no technology involved when you're on the pitch it's a bit more about that raw talent of the players and also you know you talked about flat structure it's harder to have a flat structure in an organization like that because you as again just a different team's level than the captain the way that a team you yeah, the team the players themselves organize themselves and then how the coaches run and then you know i imagine it's yeah much harder to have a flatter structure um in that kind of setup and so you then you're at Leicester and then you think okay you know I'll challenge myself uh here um and obviously you said you're from the Midlands then you decide to 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 join the Birmingham 2020 2022 Commonwealth Games yeah so that was never a plan to be brutally honest I'd planned in my head that I would stay at football a lot longer and um and then, and it, and it's it's funny, really, isn't it? I got a call one day, and I was on a train going down to London, I think, from a from a recruitment consultant who was um, was looking at the, the Commonwealth Games roles, and um, and it was just really strange. Sometimes you just sometimes when people would, you know, recruitment consultants might phone you, just be like, oh no, I'm I'm not interested. I'm really happy where I am. You know, few years maybe, you know. We'll, we could have a chat or keep in touch or whatever but he started to tell me about the role and I guess I'm from so I'm from Coventry originally and I know the area I trained in Birmingham you know um, I now live back in Warwickshire so moved, lived in London lived in Manchester lived in London moved back to the to Warwickshire so when he started telling me and I kind of I knew that Birmingham had been awarded the games after Durban had pulled out and hadn't really quite clicked and I remember my young my youngest daughter had been in a athletics competition at Alexander Stadium and had ended up being part of this promotion when the when the bid was out for Birmingham bidding for the games and but it hadn't quite clicked that it that it was happening he started to tell me about it and there was just something it's very odd I just sort of thought gosh I really feel like I have to be part of this because it's happening this is a once this is never going to happen again in this area this is a once in a lifetime for me from a legal point of view um and I kind of feel like I need to be part of this. And in a weird kind of way, there was a, it was the legal side, but it was also what the games are going to do for the, um, for the community, Birmingham and the West Midlands. And, and I guess I'd had a little bit of that at Leicester and this whole community side, but actually it was, I love sport and I'd always been fascinated by 
friends of mine and colleagues who'd worked on London 2012, you know, and they tell you the stories about being part of that multi-sport experience at the Olympics. And I know the Commonwealth Games is not the Olympics, but it's kind of the next, it's the next best thing that's going to happen in the UK. Um, and and I just thought, gosh, you know, I've, this, yeah, I've, I've just, so I've got to find out a little bit more. So um, actually when I, I spoke to the CEO, Susan at Leicester about it, actually, because I, I was very open and honest with her and, and she was actually really understood um, and was great about it because I thought, look, I don't want them. I don't want them to think I'm, I'm look. I've been looking for something, or but this is just and and it's time restricted. It's not like I can say, oh well, you know, not not quite now, but in two years because it literally, I had to decide then whether I was going to do it or not. Um, so yeah, so I kind of yeah, so let's say that would <clears throat> sorry that was never planned. And can you just, just for so for those people for those people who who um, aren't familiar with the Commonwealth Games. Um, do you want to just give them the top level numbers? Because, yeah, I think people can often, um, particularly if they're not a, a, a part of the Commonwealth, they won't quite realise the size and scope because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a humongous competition. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> and it's interesting, actually, because I um, um, cause I had to thought about this. When, when I actually I got offered the role there, I did talk to a few people to say, and I talked to sort of, colleagues who worked in different um sports arenas about the commonwealth games and was it still relevant and did they think it, this was you know and it's interesting now you question it and actually now i'm part of it it is it is unbelievably relevant actually so it's um it's interesting so it's a um it, the 72 commonwealth nations actually um where so it's an international multi-sport event and there's a it has very similar ish sports sort of the, the, the main sports that the, the Olymp- summer olympics have it will have so your athletics and your swimming and your gymnastics rhythmic gymnastics but then it has a number of non-olympic sports um, which are probably quite commonwealth um hi- historically a little bit more commonwealth based so lawn bowls netball cricket and squash um, we also, what's different from the, um, in fact, I should know, it's known as the friendly game. So it's always seen by the athletes as the Olympics is probably the one where they want to get their Olympic record, but the Commonwealth Games is the one where they can kind of go and shine a little bit more. Um, so athletes love it because they can be a bigger a bigger cheese in a way in the in that arena than they might at the Olympics where they might get a little bit lost. Um, and it's held every four years, same as um, same as the Summer Olympics. And it's got there's quite a lot of similarities in the sense that um, there are um, you know you have the opening and closing ceremony, we have the Queen's baton relay, which is equivalent to the um, to the t- Olympic torch. So that's at the moment the Queen's baton is is currently in gosh, and I should know where it is, but um, <laughs> it's in the southern the hemisphere. <laughs> and um, the um, but it's traveling around the world and it will come back to the UK in, in May, June and then travel around the UK and in particular in the West Midlands, but it will go all around. And um, there are, gosh, what are the, there are, oh, one of the key things is, is that it's para and able-bodied sports all together. So there's no separate Paralympics as equivalent of a Paralympics. So if you go for a day, which is fantastic. So from an accessibility point of view, it's it's all the athletes are one and the same so the para athletes are treated no the no distinction so on a day if you went to alexander stadium where the athletics will be there'll be a couple of para events at the same time mixed with maybe the 100 maybe the 100 meter final so the para athletes get the exact same 
audience um, as the able-bodied athlete. So that's a really um, a really big thing. And and the number. So this is the thing that shocked me when I heard this because um, obviously we were at Glasgow, um, and uh, I think I mentioned it was David Grevenberg, who is, uh, became the CEO of the Commonwealth Games, um, was mentioning you know the numbers once at an event and the number of participants is is quite astonishing i think it was it was it was in the sort of high was it in the, i think well over five thousand was it something like five thousand i think i don't know why i'm thinking of that number but you maybe yeah. you put it to hand i'm just i'm you know what i'm just i literally had a sheet of numbers and i'm just gonna <laughs> grab it um let's hope it's on it um so there are over a million tickets wow. um at the moment, we've sold a million tickets, wow. so it will be more than that. Um, it is, gosh, I've got, I think it's six and a half thousand athletes. Yeah, that we've sounds got a bit, I knew it was over five. Six and a half yeah. to seven thousand athletes. I thought it was over five thousand, um, I knew that. Much. We've got, um, there'll be, um, it's huge for the region, because we reckon there's probably be um, about one and a half billion global TV spectators are the figures we're given. Um there are, it's over 11 days, so it's in the summer from 28th of July till the 8th of August. Um, there are, I mean, it's huge for the, there's also, as well as the sport, the 11 days of sport, there's also a cultural festival which goes on from for six months. That that starts in March. People don't realise that's this huge, big cultural festival in Birmingham, which spans the the um, the entire Games as well. And when we talked about this, um, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, when I invited you onto the podcast, I said, look, it'd be wonderful to get your, um, you know, your experience in terms of what we've already heard. But in particular, you know, what, what surprised you about the Commonwealth Games? And obviously you've talked about working with, again, with these different experts who have got experience, you know, in project management. One of the things you mentioned to me was, which was lovely, lovely, um, that I thought was lovely, was that you mentioned that you're working with some people in the community who are just doing some, like fantastic work that you just otherwise wouldn't have necessarily like you know these these like real heroes really of the community who go out and they work with children with vulnerable adults and children other than members of the community do you maybe could you like sort of share your um sort of insights into that and again how is that impacting your work yeah no completely I must say you feel I felt you feel quite humbled actually um working with sort of teams of people all they do day in day out is good things like really good things for people from underprivileged backgrounds young people who have um, issues and um, can't find jobs you know out of education just aren't succeeding in life and and we're doing we've got this fantastic legacy team that you know you don't really as a lawyer you don't often see that side I think we're quite looking quite privileged as qualified lawyers that you've either you either work in a really great law firm you know and you've got great teams and support around you and um or you're in a kind of a you know a, a an environment in-house that you don't you don't see firsthand a lot of the times all the good that what the what the games hopefully for the Commonwealth Games will do so this legacy team they'll come up with all these separate little projects that um so one of the ones they're doing at the moment is for for young young people aged sort of 16 to 24 who just can't get jobs they can't get training they've maybe been in trouble with the police um you know just really tough had a really tough life so far and how can we help them sort of get over these give them this good training in, give them um volunteer positions in some of our suppliers so we work with some of our suppliers saying 
they're setting up some schemes whereby they'll offer them um, work experience so then they can add that onto their CV. We're doing um, training programmes with um, West Midlands Combined Authority. It's called the Jobs and Skills Academy, which is um, where they're doing, putting on lots of free training sessions for individuals to try to get them games jobs. So we'll have, I think we've got something like 35,000 people will work on on the games at games time whether that be directly for the organizing committee or through our games partners or our suppliers so it's a huge number of people and and there's this volunteering program which is all about trying to get young that younger generation into um trying new things and and so this i mean that i'd never really appreciated the scale of that volunteering program actually um and as my oldest daughter i encouraged her to apply too i was like this is just an amazing experience actually to be um to be involved in something and to give your time free you know and actually a lot of us get you we just get carried away don't you, you just sort of you, you get caught in that um the career path and you move from here and you work day in day out and you and you do i i genuinely feel humbled by the amount of of projects that are going on which are really helping the community and, and yeah do you think that because you know, my background was you know with law and sport and how it kind of like the genesis of it right is in like early early at least was like that when I went to university I felt very sorry for myself coming from a lower social career background and all this other stuff and yet I was uber privileged compared to most people around the world <laughs> and uh, you know I was an academic center of excellence I was able to compete in sport and so I started to, to I watched a boy who skin fell off documentary it kind of changed my perspective on things quite sharply which is a, just a fantastic documentary about an incredible individual um and I started to volunteer and it was such a great experience like such a great experience because again you're you're needly doing stuff that, that you there's no real direct benefit right and so it's almost like it forces you to be open to new experiences to meet new people you know i, I remember doing some volunteering once with i saw some some you see certain certain behaviors at times where you just like as you say it's just completely humbling um you know and and again you meet people in with different circumstances do you think from a legal perspective i know that people do a lot of pro bono work though i, I, I remember going to a talk with with, with this and I know that there's a lot of great people in law in particular who give up their time for free to do a whole bunch of different things and do it very quietly I might add um, without any you know without wanting any credit but would you recommend you know given what you're seeing now that, that would you recommend to maybe you know firms that you know whether they are sports or firms or others or lawyers in this space that they uh, you know invest some time doing stuff that is just just volunteering for volunteering sake as opposed to it's a great career move yeah, no, I agree because I know that. Um, so Gowlins, who were our legal services provider and sponsor of the games, they do a scheme. I know that they they allow their staff to take a certain number of days extra for volunteering. So if they wanted to volunteer and do and do um, something completely different to, to sort of their day job, essentially, that you know they'll get days free free extra days off. Um, to do that I think that's fantastic you know and I do think you're right you know the the law firms today do so much more and so much more pro bono work I mean one of the things that we're we kind of include in every single one of our supplier contracts is social value at that shit the minute is is um social value commitments is a is a, a mandatory actually in all our contracts so um and it's part of the evaluation process for appointing the the suppliers as well and we follow up everything that's promised as part of the tender process we're following up so whether that be with our appointed law firm or our appointed professional service provider there there's constant contract management um sessions with them purely in relation to the social value commitment so i think 
so many firms, not just even law firms, but generally companies nowadays are are thinking more in this area. They uh, it's they, they want to do good things in the community and um, and are coming up with some really great projects. So no, I agree. I think it's it's the way forward. Post games are going to pick your brains on that because I think I think that there's you know we care as you know about you know trying to be inclusive from the ground up and one of the problems that we have with you know, the sector still lacks diversity. Um, and, in, and it's not as inclusive as it could be. There's people trying to make it more inclusive, but <laughs> we're seeing just domestically, but even internationally, we're seeing this in terms of the talent pool, nowhere near being as, as diverse really as it should be. Not in the sense of, you know, trying to bump up numbers, just in terms of the number of people we know and see who are interested in this area and then who are actually coming through. Um, that um, I think it'd be great to get Maybe we could do a follow up on this in terms of how that like yeah how that mechanism works because I think there's a lot of people who want to do good they get commitments like say football clubs who get commitments from their suppliers to do stuff but then maybe they don't necessarily have the the follow up scheme the other thing I was going to mention to you is that um, from from a law and sports side from my side anything can do in terms of these people particularly who are out of jobs uh, and younger if we can be supportive of that help promote it and I'm sure other members if you're listening to this. And you think, you know, this is something that resonates with you. Please do get in contact either with me, with Caroline. Uh, you know, if we can lend some support to that, or if you give us the contact details, we can put it in the in the in the bio, uh, so people can reach out and, and help some of these people because it's a very challenging time, I think, for some of these youngsters. Yeah, it's it's a really good point as well in the sort of equality, diversity, and inclusion um, sphere because we're we take that really seriously, and we've got a head of, of, of EDI, Donna Fraser, who's an ex-athlete. Oh yeah, actually. I've met her before. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. And she is, she's really, I mean, the amount of training and sessions that we all get involved with, you know, we had a, um, the, the exec team had a session the other, this earlier this week, actually, where we really were concentrating in particular on inclusion. And, and it's generally, sort of, we talk the sports environment and even um, large sports events also historically has not been, it hasn't got a fantastic track record of bringing people on from less um, privileged and, and, and a more, from a more diverse background. And that's in Birmingham. Birmingham is, is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse um, city in the UK. So we um, we have to be, we need to be representative of the local community. And we're really trying to 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 do that insofar as we can and improving in lots of initiatives. But but it's that whole idea. Can we create a legacy in, in sort of sports events to train individuals that may that, that may never have tried or thought they could ever get into a sport event world um because it's it can be difficult to get into it's like any sport that you're in it becomes quite close-knit once you're in it and people tend to recruit from people Absolutely. who they've worked with before yeah. so how do you bring that younger generation up who may not have had the opportunity to do that before so as i say i think it's it's huge and i know football are doing something similar at the moment because you know, sports are identifying that otherwise it's just going to become, we're all, yeah, we need to, to expand. So on that as well, maybe there's, a, again, another separate conversation. There's a great, we've got an idea for a campaign, not my idea as such, it never is, but the um, an idea though where, um, you know, we could try and get the sports law community to go into school, particularly that 14 to 16 year olds to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer and I work in the sports sector and this is what it could look like. And, you know, there's other opportunities. You don't even need to be a lawyer, but you could, you know, go into anti-doping or you could go into, as you're saying, event management or supplier management or all these other areas. But just to try to say to people, look, you know, you can, um, you know, rather than, 
you know, being told that they can't. And all too often, it seems either directly or indirectly, people are, it's kind of inferred that they can't, so they don't. Um, yeah, and it's been, just been given the opportunity, isn't it? You know, we, yeah, that that we're, we, there's an element of luck, isn't there, I say, of having the chance and getting a break to, to go into sport. Like, I feel like I was quite lucky and I persevered with it, but actually not everybody has that lucky break. So we've got to go out and we've got to try and encourage and, and on that then, and this is where we're going to uh, sort of, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, um, but the, when you are looking at people in your team or colleagues, and obviously you've got, a, you know, you can, you, know, you take a deep interest in terms of, you know, people, it seems, um, and how they behave and conduct themselves. What is it that you would say are like standout sort of characteristics? Because I think, I'm not sure if you'd agree with this. But I always call these people sort of undeniables. These people you meet from different backgrounds, maybe they haven't got the right grades. Maybe they, maybe they're super privileged. Maybe they're not. But you meet these people, and they've just got something, right? And I'd obviously you're being one of those people. But they've got something where you're like, you know what? I just, you know, would like to work with this person, right? Okay, I've got quite as you were saying a bit about Ross with not being so emotional, but there's something about them. What what characteristics do you sort of really, I guess, admire or um, look for? even in colleagues yeah that's interesting actually because I mean the one thing that is just fantastic is if you is enthusiasm actually it's it's those who it's those individuals who ask who who will give it a go first of all they'll give it a go even if they're not they'll they'll admit that maybe this is outside their comfort zone but they're willing to try it and and they'll and they'll give it a go but it's that willing willingness to learn and give it a go and to be to be flexible you know it's that whole um it's quite difficult sort of in a, a legal sphere we have so many experts in so many areas and, and they're our go-to for the expert advice but particularly when you're in-house you um you you can't you kind of have to be an expert of everything and you can't be an expert of everything so you're not all it's not always going to be perfect but you're going to give it a go and being open and, and honest about that and it's that it, it it is. It's that um, a little bit of a, a not giving up and and actually being quite um, flexible. You know, we've got this big thing at the moment. It, one of our um, buzzwords on the whole workforce is that everybody's got to be flexible in the in the next six months to, when they run up to the games. And it's true in a way that you know you might have your plan that day of the things that you're going to do, and it never happens because something will side sideswipe you, and you get caught up in something else. And and to just embrace that and just go with it and and be enthusiastic about the project that you're living. You kind of live and breathe it in a way. And I think if you, if you like, sometimes I always think and people will say that maybe I care too much about what I do. And I do actually, I, I do, I find it hard. And sometimes I have to find it hard to switch off when I'm at home um, because it's, I care about, and I wouldn't do it if I didn't care about it. It's hard to not care. And it, and when you see others who who actually really care and I say they might get it wrong and it might you know and you might have to correct it if whatever they're doing is is not right or whatever but they but they're just they're willing to they're just willing to get stuck in really get their hands dirty and there's not not be too proud and the thing you mentioned there which I think is like that you mentioned it earlier when you're talking about um again Ross was like the sincerity 
right so it's not not just giving it but a sound thing it's not just about giving it a go being adaptable and malleable and you know to adjust to a different environment but it's also it sounds like that you know having that you know and then people talk about integrity a lot but having that sort of like you know honesty in terms of hey i gave this to go it didn't quite work you know let's move on uh you know tell me what i need to do to it i i you know, tell me what I do to make it better almost coachable was what one of the things I say to people are you coachable in the sense that you know are you willing to take on feedback because some, some people just aren't and I, I tell you what's great and I do always remember this it was it and it was Ross and in particular Toto is we never had a blame culture and that for me was a really big thing because it would be and this is what we're thinking a bit of f1 now but the the guys say for example when they're doing a pit stop they're, they're live on television and or they're making a call on strategy and there may be times when they don't do it right and but they're there as a team and the pressure is there and we've had situations as both teams will have that that that's kind of happens and there was always very there was it was really admirable that there was never a blame culture nobody ever there was never a finger pointing there was never everybody it was like we're a team and we take the good times and we take the bad times and I'm gonna say you sort of remember things like that and I'm I'm quite conscious of that in the way that I sort of try to manage as well is that not everybody's perfect and not everybody's going to be perfect 100% of the time particularly when they're working under pressure and long hours things might get dropped but but don't it's that whole kind of um we're but we're in it as a team so we'll take it and you know um but i do sort of always remember that was quite i think that's quite unique actually because it particularly in in such a competitive environment um but that was yeah you sort of learn you learn really some really great things don't you on, and that's on hard how, to do in practice yeah it is like, that's super the hard to do in practice yes like i'm very childish i'm like wasn't me it was... yeah yeah <laughs> and actually being the one that puts the hand up and say actually i could have done that better you know i always remember us having a God, I'm going off now on a little one, but we had a an offsite once at Mercedes. The red we had a number of guys that were in the red arrows, and I always remember one of them saying um, that the leader was at number one. I think it is the number one on the red arrows is the main guy at the front. I think it's the front, and um, and he was saying that when they'd have their debrief after a flight, he would be the one that would talk first about the things that he had done wrong. So if you as a leader start talking about let people know that it's okay not to be perfect all the time. Yeah, there's certain things like that that you always kind of remember. Yeah. Joe, it reminds me, as you're talking about, like Jocko Willink, again, referring to him, he's got this book called Extreme Ownership. And then he did another book called Dichotomy of Leadership um, with Leif Babin. And that one's, I think, a slightly better book but for me. But this thing was like, you know, he had this issue in, they were in Ramadi, I think, in, in Iraq. And something went wrong, but they had friendly fire. And he has this whole talk and he's a TED talk on it where he comes up and he's like, whose fault was it? And, every, and the various team members go, it's my fault. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I, did, I didn't do this. And he was like, no, it's my fault, basically. And he put the report in. He, t- he said, it was my, uh, ultimately, it was my fault as a leader. And his whole mantra is like, something goes wrong. It's probably your fault. <laughs> like, if you're if you're in charge, yeah, something ultimately. goes wrong. It probably is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it probably you've got is to take fault. responsibility because you're the one who's leading your team, ultimately, you know. So, yeah, no, that is a, you know, that. and it can be difficult because no one wants to make mistakes no one wants to be the one that you know does anything wrong but if you stick as a team you get through it I think and I've got one more final question as you're as you're I know you've got a hectic day so 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 but one one quick one um advice to prior practice lawyers pitching for work right you've been in Formula One you've been at IMG you've been at uh, football and now you're at Commonwealth Games 
quick one do's and don'ts what do, what do, what do you like people to do if they if they're going to be pitching for work basically what what would you say like i don't mind this if you do this i'm quite quite approachable but you know because you give a very nice um obviously you're a super nice person and you come across very well and be nice but you, i know that you you can be really stern if you want to be so uh, um so so what what are the things that irritate you basically and what are the things that you think hey you know what i'm really i wouldn't mind working with this person yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the key things, and it depends really what what role you're kind of in at the time, but in our current role in particular, because our timelines are so tight, it's being, it's it, it's simplifying things. So making things a little bit simpler for us, because there are, we we will have to interpret. Often we're as sort of the as the in-house lawyer, you're interpreting the legal advice to. For, for our business, whether it's a board meeting or an exec team meeting or to our CEO um, to get things passed. And actually, it's, yes, it's really interesting to know all the the, the legal background. And I'm fascinated by that ultimately, because you kind of want to say, oh, there's a new case on that. Oh, that's interesting. But actually, we you don't always need that. It's kind of, yeah, there's a case and it says this. And as a result, this is what we think you should do. Um, that you know, the, it's that clear, simple, straightforward advice. You know, if you do this, this is this will happen. If you go this way, these are the risks, etc. We take the risks. So highlight the risks. And then, you know, it's interesting. I, I kind of feel more comfortable taking those risks because I'm quite, it, between myself and our CFO and CEO, we have to make a lot of those decisions and make some of those calls. And But you kind of just want to know what the effects are. So this is, if you do this, these are the risks. And it is, it's, it's, it's sort of just being clear and succinct, um, shorter letters of advice that are clear and, and, and to the point. Um, might not always be the case. It kind of depends. Sometimes you need the more detail, but a lot in our current, in my current role, it, it's very much to be short um, and to the point. And also, you know, and it's difficult one this because, but but it's turnaround times it's, it, and it's the flexibility and it's not saying, and we can, you can be demanding as in-house lawyers. It's difficult, you know, the, we can be, you know, everything's urgent because our our clients, our, our internal clients are saying everything's urgent. So we have to kind of manage the expectations and say, well, it's not quite as urgent as that urgent thing, which is super urgent. Um, but it's, so it is managing those timescales, but it's, but it's us being realistic. And then if we're realistic on a timescale, it's, it's meeting them, you know, it's, there's nothing worse than kind of saying to the guys, oh gosh, we haven't got them. We, we are not able to come back to you yet because we've got to wait another day for it. And that's difficult sometimes because it might be that those timescales are pretty unreasonable. And then you feel bad saying, oh, gosh, you might have to. But isn't this the point? Isn't this the point, though, what you're talking about? We, we go coming back to the, the Formula One situation, though, right? Are you really aligned? So have, have the firm been honest about what they can actually commit to? And do they understand what they're doing when they say they can service you as a client, knowing that because you would think... Um, I'm not talking about any particular firm you know, at all, but just, just as you're talking about this, you would think that if you go, right, you're going to work on a mega event, you're going to be a supplier to a service provider, sorry, to someone in a mega event. Every deadline is critical because the knock on effect in terms of a project plan could be, you know, the dependencies are real, really tight. Therefore, if they accept that, that they're going to you know, be the provider, then they're probably going to have to take that on the chin right I know it's difficult because they've got multiple clients um I'm not saying it's easy it's kind of living and breathing it with us actually and understanding the challenges that we're facing um which is 
in the current role is very different to um the you know even in f1 unless we were in litigation or we needed something urgent normally you could be a little bit more measured in 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 what you were doing um not all the time it would depend what you were doing but but at the moment um it yeah it's kind of coming on the journey with us and sort of in, getting involved i mean it helps to a certain extent in the moment we've got secondees in from um our law firm as well and that helps and let everybody understand and we're regularly catching up and we're highlighting what our challenges are and we're also trying to because it's it's our responsibility as well from the in-house side is is to give heads up of what we think is coming down the line so we're really trying to work with all our internal clients on the pipelines of what we think are coming as so far as you can because often a lot of things is quite we have to be quite reactive but we're really into one of the big things that I'm kind of quite I find quite key as a legal team and I really tried to push it when I joined Birmingham was being in the middle of everything and not all in-house teams are actually sometimes they're what I really didn't want us to be was the legal team that sat in the corner and just churned out contracts I wanted us to be in every all of those key meetings at the table hearing it firsthand and understanding and that's um and so we've got to if we're in at there and if we're there at the table we need to then manage our internal clients to be able to manage our external law firms and I think without that it's very difficult you know you've got you kind of have to just work as a key team and we're all integrated together really in delivering so well I think you made a really good point earlier though in terms of you know say for example take your situation with Braun and when you you know you you're you know and Honda eight months pregnant and then you got the young child right and you embraced it and you got so much from that experience from embracing it it's kind of like when there is this mega event and I'm sure most of the people that you're you're currently working with um the majority are really excited about it and are like that um but it's great in terms of just taking it out of your current environment and giving broader advice to the marketplace that would be the case of if you are going to be if you're in a service industry and you're going to be serving your clients really you know get about essentially you know get all in basically and read really, you know embrace it and you'll probably come away from it if your career is anything to go by um you know with a, a, a you know way more value than just the transaction or, or the you know the fee that you're getting from a particular piece of work yeah no I agree I think you know we can all churn out we can all hope you know create good contracts or contracts that work or contracts that do what they need to do but it's really understanding what why we're doing it and what it's for and what's the the effect of it and or we're you know or providing that advice in relation to to that situation I think it's yeah, it's so much more rewarding when you when you see the bigger picture. I think it's if you're, you know, it, it, as a lawyer, you know, it's it is it's much more um, rewarding on a day to day basis. Actually, if if you're in, you live and breathe it to, to an extent, even if it's probably I live and breathe it too much, um, and I am sort of criticise myself sometimes for not for not letting go. But actually, it's um, but without that, I think it's you know I love what I do. I, I and if I you know I, I always want to keep loving what I do and enjoying every day when I mean, it has its challenges but you know I think you have to otherwise I, I think it's brilliant I thought, and I love your perspective on this and I think you know again people can say sometimes you're overworked but if you love what you do then it's not really work in that regards um Caroline thank you so much for your time that was I said I've known you for a good few years now <laughs> and I still found that you know I learned so much from that so thank you in terms of oh, you know, you your, your, your perspective and the one thing I have to say is you know I remember I think I first met you in Geneva 
a C5 event and Ian Lyman was there and kindly paid for my dinner because it was a really expensive <laughs> restaurant and I was funding myself and so always thankful for Ian for that um, and there was like people like Matthew Pay there uh, Raj Karoa was there like there's a, there's a whole bunch of people and Ben Keen just launched Keen Legal yes. and he's gone yeah, on to yeah, great yeah. great great things and anyway but there and the one thing I, I, I always remember is how nice you were and how nice you've been since then and you know your enthusiasm is something that is infectious um but I, yeah, I just really appreciate the fact that you've always been very accessible because obviously people can look at this interview and go, oh, it's all right, Sean runs law and sport and that's how he, you know, and of course she's going to talk to him. But I can tell you when I was a minnow and no one really knew who, what law and sport was, you were really nice and, and supportive and I really, it was something I appreciated. So thank you for that. Oh, no, um, you're very welcome and you've done fantastic with your <laughs> um with your, you know, with your company and and what you're doing for for sports lawyers and and the sports um, legal um, sphere is fantastic. So thank you for having me.